You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Today, we are taking the next step in our set of sermons called The Bride. Uh, The Bride is a set of sermons on the Church of Jesus Christ. And if we had one hope that we're just asking the Lord to do in you and in us collectively, it is that God would deepen and develop our love for the local church that we could say along with Charles Spurgeon in the midst of all of the church's imperfections and impurities and all of the under construction sort of nature of any local church, that we could look at the church and still say with Charles Spurgeon, it's the dearest place on earth. I, I love my church. I love the church. We're praying that the Lord would be creating in you a heart that could say that from the depths of your soul that could say that about the church. So today I want to take the next step and I want to take the next step by, by really just starting with a question. Have you, ever, have you ever just thought about and asked yourself, when Jesus looks at a church, let's just say our church, when Jesus looks at our church, what does he see? What, what does he see when he, when he looks around at Stonegate? Now, we, we could maybe even widen that to a more important question. What does God want to see? Now, as a pastor, and really just as a, as a follower of Jesus, that's a question that we should be really concerned about. As a pastor, I'm preoccupied with that question. I want to know what it is the Lord wants, and I want to do everything I can to labor to see a church become that. And one of the things that I love about the first three chapters of the book of Revelation is that Jesus comes down among seven churches. He walks among seven churches. And and in a lot of ways, he opens up his heart to us so that we can see these are the things that God loves about a church. These are the things that God doesn't love about a church. This is what God would love to see in our church, in any church. These are the things that God doesn't want to see in a church. We get to see that play out in the context of churches as Jesus walks among them. Now, in one particular of the passage, the one you just heard was in Revelation chapter two, the first seven verses. It's Jesus walking among the church in Ephesus. And this is a passage that we dealt with back in August. So I'm not going to feel a need to cover every little detail of it this morning, but I do want to kind of give the gist of it and allow that to launch us in to ask some, some important questions about our own particular church family. But, but I want you to notice here, Jesus commends some things in the church in Ephesus. Like in the passage that you just heard read, Jesus is, is praising them and commending them for certain things. For instance, um, he looks at them in verse 2 and Jesus commends them because they are serious about doctrine. Now, that is unlike many 21st century American churches who don't really care a whole lot about doctrine. This church in Ephesus cares deeply about it. They know their Bible. They know right and good theology, what the Bible teaches about God, so that when false teachers come, they can test what these teachers are saying with the scriptures. And when necessary, that they can say that teaching is wrong. That's what's happening in verse two, that they can compare it to the Bible. They know the Bible well enough to know this is not biblical. And Jesus loves that in a church. Jesus commends that in a church. Jesus looks at a church that has good, right theology and says yes to that. That is a good mark in a church. It's a good thing in a church. In verse two, he also commends them that they're serious about holiness. You see it in verse two. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. In other words, their right theology, their right doctrine is being translated into right living, that they cannot bear with evil. 
In other words, they're laboring for Jesus. They want to make a difference for Jesus. They want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and he is affirming that. He's commending that. He's looking at the church in Ephesus and saying, that is a great thing. That is one of the ways that you're imaging forth me and the world. Keep doing that. I love that you're serious about holiness. And then you get to verse three and Jesus commends them because they are suffering well for his sake. You see it there in verse three. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. You know, if you think about the church in Ephesus, uh, this particular group of Christians did not enjoy a favored place kind of, you know, among the society there in Ephesus. That's not the way it was working there. Uh, This city was not kind to Christians. Uh, Many Christians, just because they were Christians, met their death in Ephesus. It's interesting in Acts 19, where you really see the church begin in Ephesus. Here's the play out that you have there. Uh, By the power of the Holy Spirit, a revival breaks out in Ephesus and a lot of people uh, meet Jesus all at one time. And in the moment that that revival breaks out, immediately following that, you have opposition break out. So this is, a, this is not an easy place to be a Christian. And Jesus is looking at these people, this, this church, and saying, but you're being faithful. You're, you're following me. You're enduring suffering for my name's sake. And Jesus commends that in him. He loves to see a church doing that and operating like that and trusting him in that. But then you get to Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. But I have this against you, Jesus says. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, when I read verse four and I picture myself reading it for the first time, I am not expecting to see that in verse four. That is not what I'm expecting to follow verse three. He's just commended their doctrine, you know, doctrinal fidelity, their serious pursuit of holiness, how well they are enduring up under suffering. He's commending all of those things about them. And I am not expecting the next thing to be a, but I have this against you, but you've got this major problem, but you've lost your first love. That's not what I'm expecting there. I mean, this is a church that's doing great things for Jesus that they're running after holiness for for Jesus. They're suffering for Jesus. I'm not expecting in the midst of all of their great doing for Jesus to say, there's just one problem in the midst of your doing, you've lost your love. Verse four um, reminds us of this. Let me just read a quote from you by Alexander Strzok. He wrote a book called Love or Die. And in that book, he makes this comment on verse four. He says, what we learn from Revelation 2, 4 and must never forget is that an individual or a church can teach sound doctrine, be faithful to the gospel, be morally upright and work hard, yet be lacking love and therefore be displeasing to Christ. Gosh, is that not sobering? Love can grow cold while outward religious performance still appears to be acceptable or even praiseworthy. In other words, a church can have all of this sort of outward religious formality to them, doing all of these things that appear on the surface to even be really good things. They could be doing all of that and all the while have lost their love. Now that really just allows me to pose the question that I want us all to wrestle through this morning. And it's that question, have you lost your love? Now, I think an immediate question that should follow that is love of what? Now, it's interesting. Look at verse four. And I just want you to notice that there's not an object of that love, 
right? It doesn't say love for and then fill in the blank of what the love for, you know, is that they lost. It doesn't do that. It's left intentionally open-ended. Now, back in August, we applied that vertically. Have you lost your love of Jesus? That first love, that, that love of Jesus. And that is a right, good, proper application of this passage. But it's not the only application of this passage. And that's the reason I want to pick it back up this morning. We applied it one way, but there's another way to apply it. Yes, it should be applied vertically. It should, it should allow us to ask the question, have we lost this deep, abiding, rich, vibrant love of Jesus in our soul? But it should also be pressed down horizontally so that we can ask this question. Have we lost our love for people? Have we lost our love for the people around us, the people that God has placed us within? Have we lost our love of people? And that's the question that I want to in particular ask you to wrestle through this morning. Have I lost my love for people? Now, I think that question is a very relevant question for any Christian follower of Jesus to ask and for any church to ask. Um, Seven or eight years ago, Anne Rice Uh, She's an author. She was doing an interview with Christianity Today, and she made this statement. She said, Christians have lost credibility in America as a people who know how to love. I'm going to read that one more time. Christians have lost credibility in America as a people who know how to love. Now, I've seen enough Christians just reach for the jugular of one another to to know that that critique should not be just sort of passively dismissed. And I just really want to give us space and time this morning to get in front of Jesus and to open our hearts to Jesus corporately as a church, individually as, as a follower of Jesus. And let's just ask Jesus, Father, would you show me, God, would you show me, have I, have I lost the ability to love people? Have I lost my love not only of you, but, but of others. Do, do I know how to love people well? First, just to open ourselves up to the Lord and, and to create space to ask that question to him. Now, I want to come at this from a couple of different angles uh, this morning. I, I want to put it in the context of the Bible, this idea of loving one another in the context of the Bible. So we're going to talk about love in the Bible. I want to apply it to the church. We'll talk about love in the church. And then at the end, I want to just apply it personally, lo- love in your own life. So let's start with love in the Bible. Love in the Bible. Um, have you ever just asked yourself the question, what is the most important word in the Bible? The most important word. I think the most important word in the Bible is the word God. But right behind that, there are a cluster of of words that I think are in a firm second place. And love is one of those words in that cluster in second place. Love is used over 800 times in the scriptures. Let me just give you a sampling uh, of these. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, um, John tells us this, God is love. God is love. So when you cut the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, when you cut the triune God down to the core, what you find deep down there at the core is a heart bursting forth with love. That is what you find deep down in the heart of God. And that bursting heart of love in God, you can see that in a lot of different ways in the scriptures. You see that in creation. Creation, it comes about because of the overflow of the triune love of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There's such a deep, robust well of love within the triune God that it spills up and out of that God into creation. And you have Genesis 1 and 2. So you see it in creation. You also see that this heart of bursting love in 
God in the incarnation. God the Father sending his beloved son down to earth to to become human, to walk among us. And, And maybe most clearly in the Bible, you see this heart of bursting love in the cross of Christ where Jesus stands in our place to take the punishment of our sin on the cross, dies for us, for our sin. Right? This, is, this is a bursting heart of love as it's seen throughout the biblical landscape. Now, now that, that heart of dying love that Jesus has for us, that takes us right to the core of what love is. Let me just put, throw this definition up on the screen for you. If you were here four or five years ago, we did a marriage conference with Paul Tripp over in Fort Worth. And when he was talking about marriage, at one point he defined love and he defined it like this. And I think it just takes us right to the core of the biblical idea of love. He, he said this, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Love is willing self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice involves dying to self. It involves giving ourselves, spending ourselves, even to the point of impoverishing ourselves for the good of another without demanding that they reciprocate that love to us or that they are deserving of the love that we're giving them. That that is love in the Bible. That this sort of willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. And this is what we see in Jesus. This is why Jesus says in John 15, 13, greater love is no one than this, than someone lay down, sacrifice his life for his friends. Right? He is showing us that is what's the heart of love. Now, when you think about love in God, love is not the only attribute of God. But when you think about that attribute of love in God, it takes us all the way down to the bedrock of God. It takes us all the way into the deepest recesses of the heart of God. And what we find there is a heart bursting forth with love. Now, it's no surprise in light of that, that when Jesus is asked to clarify, hey, out of all the 613 Old Testament commands, out of all of those commands, how would you summarize those down into the most important ones? How would you do that? It's no surprise that Jesus would say this in Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. And Jesus said to them, here here are the two most important commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just picture yourself tomorrow. It's going to be a Monday and you're going to wake up wherever you kind of spend your Mondays. Maybe it's 10 a.m. and you're going to wake up and you're at work and you're asking yourself the question, why am I here? I don't even like this job. What am I doing here? Or maybe you're a teenager and you're going to wake up and it's going to be like second period for you. And, and you ask yourself the question, man, I don't like school. I don't like this subject. Why am I here? Or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom and, and by 10 o'clock, you're already beating your head against the wall, right? And, and you're asking yourself the question, what am I doing with my life? And wh- what, what's the purpose of all this? Uh, allow this passage to, to show you your purpose. Here is why you find yourself at school, why you find yourself at your workplace, why you find yourself in your family, why you find yourself in your neighborhood, why you find yourself wherever you do. Here's the purpose that God has for you in that, that that you would love Jesus and that your love of Jesus would spill out and be shown in the way that you would love other people. That's why you're sitting in your classroom. That's why you're in your workplace. Secondarily, to, to make your paycheck. Secondarily, to learn whatever the subject, primarily to love God 
And for that love to be shown, that love of God to be shown in the way that you would love other people. That's why God has you there. Now, these these two commandments, these greatest two commandments are interconnected. Maybe you could think of it in terms of like a spring and a stream. So think about what a spring is. A spring is where something originates. That's the first commandment, this love of God. This is where everything begins in the Christian life. You, You don't make it any further than this place. It's impossible to do anything else in the Christian life apart from a deep, rich, vibrant love of God. This is the, the spring. But that spring of a love for God has a way of then flowing and collecting and becoming a stream of a love for others. But do you see how deeply the two are connected? You don't have a stream without the spring. And if you've got a spring of this deep love of God, it's got to flow somewhere and do something. And it forms this stream of this love of God. They're deeply connected. They're so connected that Paul can just use shorthand for it. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says it this way. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. They're so interconnected, he can just say this. Here's the whole law in one single word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that is a direct quote back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That that same passage in Leviticus is quoted nine times in the New Testament. That is showing us, that the New Testament is showing us what is so important in the Old Testament. In particular, that phrase, nine times in the New Testament, you you find that quoted. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, think about what Jesus is inviting us to consider with that phrase. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is not teaching here that you need to love yourself. He is assuming that you love yourself. He already knows that about us, right? So he's not saying you need to love yourself more. He's saying, think about the way you love yourself. How do you love yourself? Think about the way you love yourself. I mean, think, think about the way you protect yourself. Think, think about the ways that you, when you don't feel like your rights are being honored, the way that you would fight for your rights. Think about the way that you would demand that you be heard. And when you're not heard, it offends you, right? That's all an expression of a love for self, that you demand that you would be heard, that you would make sure every one of your needs are met, right? This is all the ways that we love ourselves in the room. Jesus knows that about ourselves. So then Jesus says, why don't you think about the way you love yourself and now turn that out on other people and love other people like that. You know how much you love you? We all love us. Now love other people like you love you. But then in John 13, he changes that. He, he raises the level of love even higher. And he says, now I don't even want you to think of it in terms of how you would love yourself. I want you to think of it in terms of how I would love you. So, so here's how I want you to think about your life. I want you to meet the needs of others with all the energy and delight and creativity and consistency with which I have met your needs. You have received this love from me and now I want you to turn that love that you have received from me, that that, that same exact love out to other people and I want you to love your neighbors as I have loved you. I want you to walk in the love that that I have loved you with. And that sort of like love of neighbor, that is to be a mark in every Christian's life, in every church's life. In John 13, 35, Jesus clarifies that this should be a mark in our lives. He says it this way, by this, this sort of love of other people, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. Listen to Francis Schaeffer comment on that. He says it this way. He he wrote an article called The Mark of the Christian. I would just encourage you to read it. You can Google it and find it. It is so good. 
and so it's a prophetic word for us in our day. He says this in that article. Jesus gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born again Christians. So Jesus is giving authority, according to John 35, or 1335, for the the world to look at Christians and to call some balls and strikes on Christians. On what basis? He goes on. Jesus gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. Of our observable love. They can call ball and strikes based on how they can see us either loving or not loving one another. And then he goes on. If people say you don't love other Christians, we must go home, get down on our knees and ask God whether or not they are right. And one of the things I am just asking God to do for us today is give us the courage to get down on our knees before God and just to ask God, are they right? Do I know out of love, am I loving other Christians? Am I loving my church? Am I loving people the way you would call me to to love others? But Jesus goes on to say something even more profound. In John 17, verse 21, Jesus is praying and he says this. He prays that they may all be one. In other words, all of, of his followers, they may, they may be one. Just as, you, Father, and are, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the, listen to this last statement, so that, that's, that's purpose. Now, why would they need to see their oneness? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen to Francis Schaeffer go on to comment on, on John 17. He says, here, Jesus is stating something else, which is much more cutting and much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness or the love among true Christians. Is that not a sobering thing to consider? Jesus is saying in in John 13 and John 17, he is giving the world the right to judge our authenticity by the way we love one another and the authenticity of Jesus by the way we love one another. I mean, love in the Bible is not a secondary sort of issue. It is right at the top of the issues. When Jesus is coming and walking among the churches, this is what he's looking for. This mark by which the world can say, yep, those guys are are faithful followers of Jesus. By which they can say, yep, God, Father really did send God the Son. The claims of Jesus really are true. It's how we would love and operate with one another. It's not a secondary issue. Listen to this passage in, in 1 Corinthians 13. First couple of verses here says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if not love, I am a noising gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned for crying out loud, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now listen to Maurice Roberts. He was a Scottish pastor. Listen to him comment on this passage. He says, in in these familiar words, we possess one of the most central principles of the Christian life. It is this. No religious act is of any value in God's sight if it does not accompany and flow from Christian love. 
I'm going to read that statement again. No religious act is of any value in God's sight if it does not accompany and flow from Christian love. He goes on, but men seldom ponder this. If the implications of this one principle were consistently thought through, they would have a momentous effect upon us all. Since nothing is of value in God's eye if it does not flow from love, how, then how much need is there for us to correct our habitual formalism? The problem of formalism, formalism or religious sort of coldness is intensely serious for the obvious reason that it springs from the absence of love. Think about your last week and think about the good things that you did. Not the bad things, the good things you did. Like you, you met this person's need. You did that. You did this. Think about those good things. This passage is showing us. This is what Maurice Roberts is trying to clarify. This passage is showing us that if those good things you did had a formalism about them, you just kind of did them because you, it was good things to do. And you just, you know, if it, if it was religious formalism and didn't spring from a heart of love, when God looks at that, it impresses him none. Gosh, is that not sobering? God is not just looking at what we're doing. He's looking down underneath what we're doing and asking the question, does it spring from a heart of love? And then what does love look like? 1 Corinthians 13 goes on to show us. Just think about this in your last week. Love is patient. It's patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. In other words, it, it always is going to assume the best about this situation, this circumstance, this person. And, and th that is written for the Corinthian church, which is really jacked up in its love much like we are, to just hold that up and put our lives under it and to ask the question, does that description of love match our life? Is that what our, is that what our life looks like? In verse 13, it goes on to, to say, Paul does, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these are love. Isn't that interesting? If Paul was just saying, if I just had to pick, I like them all, but if I just had to pick one, I'm going with love. It, it's the most important. So that takes us back to our question. Are we loving people? Have we lost our love? Has it grown weary? Has it grown cold inside of us? And here's a healthy examination. Alexander Strzok in, in the book, Love or Die, he just allows us to, to ask questions as he says this. What, what does love look like when it grows cold? When love goes to sleep, we grow cold and unfeeling toward people. It's just kind of their problems, but it's not going to be our problems. We love material possessions and personal comforts more than people. We love our work more than people when love grows cold. When love grows cold, we become bitter towards people because our feelings have been hurt. We become weary and selfish serving. Ungrateful people uh, become content to show love only to those who are agreeable to us. Like we love to show love to people who love us, don't we? I mean, it's those people that I love to love, but it's the person who doesn't love me. That, that becomes a whole different ballgame, right? And Jesus even comments on that. He says, even, even pagans who have no supernatural work of God in their heart, they can love people who love them, but it takes a supernatural work of God to love those who don't love us. We become lazy and complacent about love when we've lost our love. 
We neglect our duty to love the unlovely and the disagreeable. Like the priest and the Levite in the story of the, old, uh, the Good Samaritan, we become apathetic to the sufferings of others. So, so how are you doing? Are you loving other people? When people think of you, do they think that is a loving person? That, that, is, that is a mark that I see in their life. Or have you lost your love? Now, there's so many ways to apply that. We could apply that to marriage, which would be a very good application of it. We could apply that to your neighborhood, which would be a very good application. The workplace, very good application. But I wanna apply that to the church, to the church. So let's, let's just think for a minute about love and the church. What, what does love like this look like in a local church? I, I think the 59 one another's in the New Testament give some, some descriptions of that. They give us some some things that we can see tangibly as love is playing itself out. There's 59 of these one another statements in, in the New Testament. Now, I would love to be able to go through many of them, but for the sake of time, I just want to quickly pass through six of them. Just kind of six descriptions the New Testament gives us on how love is to play out across kind of family lines in the context of the church. Six of these, really briefly here. Number one, be devoted to one another. That's Romans 12:10. Be devoted to one another. It's one of the expressions of love in a local church. Periodically, I love just to encourage you to look around the room. Just go ahead and look at some faces around the room. See some people around the room. Just get those people in your mind. <coughs> and as you look around the room, if you, if you don't find anybody in that room who has wounded you in some way, here's what it means. You don't know them well enough or you haven't known them long enough. That's what it means, right? So, so here's the thing, as we're doing life together, it's just messy. It's messy, it's hard, right? I mean, we, we use a description oftentimes around here. It's when we enter into Cruddy Valley and Cruddy Valley is that moment where I've sinned against you, you've sinned against me, I've hurt you, you've hurt me, we've all hurt each other. And we're just in that place where it is hard to love that person. Everything in us wants to recoil out of that, right? It, it's a hard place. And in that moment, we have one of two options. Here's the two things that we can do. Number one, we can run. And this is the default human response. We get hurt and we want to instantly put on, up a stiff arm to keep that person at a distance from us now, right? This is one response. We just keep that person up and over there. Sometimes that can look like we're going to change a home group. Sometimes that can look like we're going to change churches. It can look like all sorts of different things. But here is the warning we all need to hear. When we put that stiff arm up and, and put that person over there and we run from that hard moment, we are saying, we, we, we are running into a stunted spirituality. When we run from those moments, we are ensuring that our spiritual growth is going to be stunted. That's the other end of running. That's what happens when we run in that moment. So that's one option though. We, we can run. We can put that person over there at a distance. That's, that's an option. The other option is we can respond with the good news of Jesus. And this is what being devoted to one another looks like. We hang in there. We stick in there. Even when it's really hard, we apply the good news of Jesus to our own heart and our own sin. We apply the good news of Jesus to their heart and to their sin. And we move toward them like Jesus has moved toward us. Now, I think it's just a good moment to ask yourself, is that playing out in your life? That, that being devoted to one another, this is one of the marks of love. This is one of the, the descriptions of love. We would be devoted to one another. And just ask yourself the question, is that happening for you? Are you being devoted to one another? Here's another way that love plays itself out in the church is to serve one another. That's Galatians 5.13, to serve one another. When we love people, what we're doing is we're willingly sacrificing we're giving our life away so that other people can flourish. 
We are impoverishing ourselves so that other people cannot be impoverished. That, that is serving one another. And just ask yourself the question, is that happening for you? Well, one of the things I love about just when we gather on a Sunday morning like this, the, for us to be able to do this means there's a few hundred people who have been serving us to make that happen. Some of that starts on Saturday night when people just tear down from the mayhem that was here last night. Some of that is Sunday morning, very early at six o'clock. People get here to set this place up so that we would have a chair to sit in so that this place would look fairly nice when we get here. People are doing childcare right now so that you can sit in this room, right? All of those things are happening right now in a way of serving you. I love the different ways that I can see service happening among our body. And just ask yourself the question, is that you? Are you serving our church family in some way, shape or form? Impoverishing yourself, giving your life away in some way or another. If not, this would be a great morning to step across that line. You can meet us at the connection table. We would love to help you take next steps in figuring out where to serve and how to serve. But this is one of the marks of, of loving. It's, it's, we're serving one another. Another way love plays itself out in a church is that we bear one another's burdens. We bear one another's burdens. This has been in particular really convicting for me to think about over the last few months. One of the things I've just noticed about my own heart is that so often love for me stops with feeling really, really bad about the plight of another person. So I hear that even by God's grace, I think I've, I've been able to take new steps and even being able to enter in to the plight, the bad plight, the, the terrible circumstances of a person's life. But, but it stops there of entering into that and feeling with them the, the weight of that burden. But if our love stops there at just entering in and feeling that with them, what we're doing is something less than the Bible's word love. It's something less than that. 1 John 3, 18, I think helps us see that. When John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. John Stott says it this way, commenting on that. A true love for people leads to labor for them. Otherwise, it degenerates into mere sentimentality. And what I've noticed in my own heart is way too often love gets shrunk down into sentimentality. I just feel so, so bad but it never picks up the other side of the, of the laboring for them. And, and I mean, this is something the Lord really has me right in the middle of right now, just asking the Lord for help in this area. And here's one of the things I found myself praying consistently over the last few months is when I bump into a problem or into an, a terrible situation that Jesus would help me make that person's problem my problem. That like when I see that problem, it wouldn't be their problem. And I, I wouldn't keep that problem over here at some like arm's length, but I would bring that problem inside to me and that that now becomes my problem. And in other words, I, I, I'm praying that the Lord by his grace would give me the willingness and the ability to take that burden that that person is carrying, to, to, to take half of that, three quarters of that, some part of that, strap it onto my back so that their life would be better and they could flourish Man, that is such a hard thing. That feels so impoverishing at times. It feels so hard at times. But I'm just praying that God would do that for me, that God would do that for us, that we would be a church family who is constantly seeing the needs of other people. That means we actually have to get outside of ourselves and our problems and our world and our life, all that. We have to get outside of that to the needs of other people. That God would give us eyes to see that. And when we see it, to not keep those problems there, but to bring those in here. Just ask yourself the question, am I bearing the burdens of other people? Like in our church right now, among my home group, 
Am I willing to take on those burdens and to help lighten the load of other people so that they could have some relief in their life? This is part of the way that love shows itself in a church. Love also shows itself in the willingness to forgive one another. This is Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And I just don't know many things in the Christian life more difficult than forgiveness. It just is so hard. It is so hard. Nursing a bitter wound feels so great in the moment. I've always uh, remembered this uh, small paragraph from a guy named Frederick Buechner as he's describing that. He, he says it this way, of the seven deadly sins, anger or bitterness or resentment, it's the most fun. It's the, it's the sin that has like the most immediate kind of payoff in the moment. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you're giving back to them. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. It just feels so good right there in the moment to nurse those wounds, to, to nurse those grudges. But it's the opposite of love, right? Love moves toward that person. It fights against bitterness. It fights against resentment. It fights against all of those sort of like negative emotions and, and, and desires in our hearts. And it moves toward that person with grace, I just wonder in the room this morning, how many of us need to take up the proactive fight against bitterness, against resentment? How many of us need to proactively move toward a person with a spirit of forgiveness? It's one of the ways that love shows itself in the church. Another way love shows itself is to encourage one another. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.11, to encourage one another. This is the proactive work of spurring one another on toward Jesus, of reminding one another of how God's at work in them. And listen, this is one of the ways that love shows itself, is that we would think about, we would consider, this is Hebrews 10.24, consider people around us, in your home group, in, in, your, in our church family. We would consider them. And then as we're considering them, we would think, well, how could God use me today to help them love Jesus more? to stir them up toward love of God and love of others and to good deeds. How could God use me for that? I mean, maybe just as a proactive way you could do this, just think about the people in your home group and just list them and put them on the day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, just put their names on the day. And on those days, spend time thinking about them. I'm thinking about this person. How could today, God, how would you want to use me to help them love you more? How would you want to use me for that? Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 and 13 have just stuck in me here lately. Here's what it says there. The writer of Hebrews says, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How do you combat that? Verse 13, but exhort one another every day. Like every day we're exhorting, we're thinking about how could I spur on that person toward Jesus? How could I help them hate their sin and love Jesus more today? But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, why would we do that? So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That those little simple moments of encouragement, you pick up the phone when you think about that person and you encourage them. Here's how I've seen God at work in you. I want you to know I love this about you. I appreciate this about you. I've learned this from you. Those little simple moments of encouragement are how we keep one another moving toward Jesus and away from sin. 
Lastly, number six, one, one other way we can love one another is by praying for one another. That's James 5, 16, to pray for one another. I just wanna do everything I can to encourage you to create space in every week to pray for our church family. Pray for those in your home group, pray for our church. Uh, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine. He's been a pastor for a long time, 35 or so years. And he called me this week knowing that we were in the middle of doing you know, construction stuff this year. And he said, uh, you can take this to the bank, mark this down, write it down. You need to remember this. At some critical point in the construction process, you are going to hear from hell. I'm like, thank you. Appreciate that. I feel so great and encouraged today. But I just left that conversation thinking, oh God, we better pray. And we better seek your face and ask for your help. And will you pray for our church family? Think about your home group. Just what would it look like on a, on a daily basis for you to take one or two or three people in there and intercede for them, pray for them, ask the Lord to, to grow them, ask the Lord to give us as a church love, that we would love one another in a way that would bring great honor and glory to Jesus. I was just reminded in, in that book, Love or Die, Alexander Strzok, he said it this way, one reason we see little growth in love in our churches is because we exert little effort in praying for it. May that not be us. May we exert great effort in praying for it. And lastly, I'm gonna finish here, love in our lives. And I wanna take you back to, to Revelation 2, verse five. And I just wanna read through this one verse with you and we're done. John here gives us, or really Jesus gives us three things to do. If, if we've lost our love, what, what do we need to do this morning? How would, we, how would we proactively begin to co-labor with the spirit to, to correct that and to fix that? Jesus gives us three things here. You see it in Revelation 2, verse five. Remember, therefore, from where, you have, uh, from where you have fallen. Remember. That's an invitation for you to look at your life. Where you have seen a love of God and love of others. And to ask yourself the question now, is there a white, hot, burning love of God and other people in my life? But more importantly, it's not just a, an invitation to remember your love for Jesus and others. Most importantly, it's an invitation to remember the steady, unflinching, sacrificial love of Jesus for us. When you think about in your own life, the number one reason that you and I fail in our love for God and others is because we just fail to remember God's incredible love of us. That's why, this is 1 John chapter 4, 19. We love, now why do we love? Here's the reason that we love. Because he, Jesus, first loved us. That's the reason we can love God and other people. So just think about the way God has loved you. Think about the way. Th think about how, how patient God has been with you. How patient he has been. Think about how kind God has been to you. So kind that he would send his beloved son, Jesus, down from heaven to come and seek us out. And when we turned against Jesus, Jesus didn't kind of wash his hands from us and stomp out of the room in a temper tantrum. He didn't do that. When we turned from him, he allowed himself to be nailed on a cross where he received the very punishment for our turning. That is the love of Jesus for us in response to all of our wickedness, all of our turning, all of our hatred, all of our reviling. Jesus responded with nothing but love for us. To, to this day, if you're a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, every time you turn, Jesus doesn't turn from you. He comes after you. This is how we have been loved by God. R remember Jesus says, remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent, repent.
to turn from these things. Turn from that lack of love. Think about your last week. Where has religious formalism, I'm just doing the right things to do them, but it's not connected to a heart of love. Jesus is saying, turn from those things. Or maybe it's the other side of just where we have overtly lacked love in our life. Where we have been the opposite of patient, the opposite of kind. Jesus is saying, would you please take that lack of love to me? Would you allow me to thaw out your heart into fresh responsiveness to me today? So so remember, then then repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and then do the works that you did at first. Consider what what fresh steps would I need to take today if I'm going to love Jesus and love other people? But what would God want from me today? Now, I just want you to bow your heads there where you are, and I want to give you a moment to consider that. What, What would Jesus, what fresh steps would Jesus want? And here's the great thing today. We're finishing with communion, which essentially puts all three of those imperatives from Jesus in verse five, all three of them into one moment for us. Communion is a time where we get to remember. When you take up the bread, you are remembering the broken body of Jesus. Jesus literally being crushed for our iniquity. But when you dip that bread in the juice, you are remembering the blood that was spilled on our behalf. Jesus taking the punishment of our sin. And communion is for those who are in right relationship with God. So if if you have never met Jesus, that's the first step today. Before you take communion, take Jesus this morning. We're gonna have people at the prayer table after the service. We would love to begin that journey with you. Come let us know. If that's you, meet us at the prayer table this morning. But it's for those who are in right relationship. In other words, if there is a lack of love, that we bring that to God. We, we repent, we turn from that. We ask God to fall that out into fresh responsiveness. And we return. But part of repentance is, God, what, what would be the next steps that you would want? God, how can I co-labor with the Spirit now? to to move toward what it is that you would want in my life? What would be the next steps? If I'm gonna love others like you have loved me, what would be the next steps I need to take in that? So Father, would you please show us that this morning? God, through the power of your spirit, would you now speak to us? Would you point a finger to any of those little places in our heart that, that we need to see that we're blind to today? God, would you do that for me? Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful we have a Savior in Jesus that meets us in all of our failures to love, in all of our terrible, impatient, lacking in kindness moments, and covers them all, and now empowers new steps of obedience. So God, meet us and help us today. It's in your good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.